Greetings, everybody. This is a Travel Addict podcast where you can hear candid stories and discussions about business and adventure travel from around the world with activities such as trekking, diving, camping, driving, cruising, and just plain chilling out somewhere. We talk about lots of experiences in places all over the world, including the grand, the remote, the edgy, the risque, and ones of questionable merit. Education, fulfillment, and wonder enrich our lives. And of all the books in the world, the best stories are found between the pages of a passport. Stay tuned. Hi, everybody. Malcolm Teasdale here, the travel addict. You know, I've been out of town a lot this year and uh, making up for lost time. I think that's what it is. Or maybe just a continuing midlife crisis. Well, I decided to make yet another trip. I've got a full itinerary this year. And you know what? That, this is instead of uh, doing podcasts. What I mean by that is I'm not guesting anywhere or I've been really not having any guests on my show because I've been on the road. A little bit difficult to do on the road. So here's a place I went to recently. And people thought I was knocking foots, so to speak. When I told them I wanted to go a little bit off the beaten track to a place in Africa. Well, it's a country of Namibia. And uh, I wanted to visit the world's oldest desert. And, of course, people said to me, "Uh, why on earth do you want to go there, Teasdale? You're just crazy. What's wrong with you? Well, it's my quest to do as much as possible in the time I've got left on this planet, which, of course, I don't know how long that is, but I just want to do as much as I can while I can do it. Nothing wrong with that, is there? So I was supposed to go there. Well, actually, my intention was to go there a year or so ago, but, you know, COVID was around and Namibia was sort of locked up, and so was that part of the world, South Africa. Remember that a a COVID variant came out of there. I can't remember the name it was. Omicron, I think it was, that variant that was prominent in that area. Well, I set the date. As long as you wait for a trip, you know, you book it, you have to wait. Oh, I've got to wait so long. All of a sudden, it's here, and I'm packing my bags, and I'm ready to go. So the country of Namibia, and most people I mentioned that I was going there, they said, well, well, where exactly is that? Well, it's in the southern part of Africa, just sort of west or I would say northwest of the country of South Africa. The question is, is it easy to get there? Well, you know what? It's not that bad. So what I did, I took the long flight. In fact, it's Delta's longest flight they have on record. It's a flight from Atlanta Airport to Johannesburg in South Africa. It's a pretty long flight. Not the longest flight in the world, by the way, but it's up there. Now, that's the one I took. Now, got on the plane, and the captain jokingly said that we would arrive earlier than scheduled and that it would only take 15 hours. (laughs) So I had to laugh at that, only 15 hours. So my thought was drink, eat, sleep, then repeat. Okay, 15 hours sounds like about two days' worth of time I could wrap up into a flight to make it less painful. Now, the flight worked. 
it was a good flight on a Delta A350-900. Great plane, comfortable. Uh, business class, I was able to lie down, get my head down. I didn't get a great night's sleep, but, you know, it was good enough for a flight. Now, I landed at Johannesburg Airport. Come remember what time it was exactly, but I think it was about 5 p.m. in the evening, local time there. So all I did was walk across the street, pick my bag up, walk across the street uh, to the Intercontinental Hotel by Johannesburg Airport, and I just stayed there the night. Excellent hotel, by the way. It's a bit pricey because, you know, it's right by the airport, and that's what hotels do when they're pretty well next to an airport. Johannesburg, decent airport, by the way, quite modern. Um, so I had a short overnight stay in Joburg. Then I walked back across the street uh, into the check-in area and checked in with Airlink Airlines. They're based out of uh, South Africa. They fly all around that region, by the way. So I took a two-hour flight to the capital city of Namibia, which is a city called Windhoek. W-I-N-D-H-O-E-K. I got to Windhoek Airport and I arranged for a lift. And I stayed at the Hilton Hotel in Windhoek. So I contacted them and they offered to send a driver to pick me up from the airport. It's about a 40-minute car ride into the city centre of Windhoek in the hope that night that I would get a decent night's sleep. Well, jet lag ruined that completely. However, in the city centre of Windhoek, it was quite neat, actually, quite a modern city and very clean. Neat to walk around, although I didn't do much of it. There was a little uh, market just below, um, or I'd rather say just next to my hotel, which I could walk around and people were selling stuff that I didn't really need. Um, But the next morning, I checked out, And I was picked up by a driver that I hired through a company called Viator.com, V-I-A-T-O-R.com. They're part of the TripAdvisor organization. And I trust these guys, so, you know, Viator sounded like a good bet to book a ride. And the reason I did that, because ahead of me was quite a long drive. Now, I thought about renting a car myself, um, but, you know, after all that flying, I thought I may get tired. There's a bigger reason for that. It's because of the terrain along the way to where I was going. Now, Namibia, it just so happens to have the world's oldest desert. Yes, it's about 55 million years old. All right, sounds interesting. What could be out there? Well, I intended to find out. So, I hired a driver, and it was about a five-hour drive. Now, my thought here that if I did it myself, there may be a problem like veering off the road because they're not paved. It's gravel or sand. Now, sand can be soft, and if I get stuck in the sand, well, I'm sort of stranded. How long would it be before someone came by? And if they did, would they stop and help out? It's a country I knew nothing about. I wasn't familiar with the roads, so it made sense that I hired a driver. And it wasn't that bad because it's a long drive. So the guy who was driving me had to drive me where I was going and then drive back to Windhoek. Right? So effectively, it's a 10-hour day for the driver. 
and it wasn't bad price. I think it was about two seventy, two two hundred seventy dollars. So it's not bad at all. So we actually hit the road, and it was quite an interesting drive along the way. There was a few animals I saw. Um, it's not like the Serengeti, by the way, because this is a desert, right? One of the driest places on Earth. Along the way, yeah, I saw a baboon. I saw other animals. I even saw a uh, antelope. I think it was an antelope. But they weren't in crowds, you know. So it was just, you know, I, a good drive, really. The driver was great. Didn't talk a whole lot, which was good because I wanted a nap. We got there. It's a five-hour journey along these sand roads. And the further into the desert we got, the less trees there were, less bushes, less greenery. So once I learned more about the road we were taking, I thought, thank God I didn't rent a car myself, you know, because I would have been stuck. And this guy had done this drive. He does it about once a week. So, Well, the place I was staying was a resort called the Desert Hills Lodge, basically in the middle of nowhere. Now, the scenery around this place was absolutely unbelievable. What did, what did I expect from an area of the world that is about 55 million years old? Extremely dry. Now, scattered around the area are other sort of lodges where you could stay. I looked at a few, but I chose the Desert Hills Lodge mainly because there was vacancies there and also uh, because it was in an unbelievably beautiful area. So I got there probably about 5 or 6 p.m. Pretty tired, a little bit of jet lag. So my idea for the night was to just rest and also the following day. I wasn't going to go do too much. Now, in the lodge, basically it's in the middle of nowhere. Okay, All the people who work there were men. And there's a good reason for that. This is in the middle of nowhere, okay? They do stay at the lodge, but, you know, they work about six weeks and get about two weeks off. And I think that was uh, what I understood by what one of the staff said there. Okay, so they work hard, and then they have a couple of weeks off, and they have to drive back to the home, which could be, you know, many hours away from where the lodge uh, was. The lodge was superb, by the way. The service was great. The staff, super friendly and welcoming. Now, I stayed in a hut, which I wish you could see a picture of it. I'll post something on my website and also on my Instagram account so you see a picture of it. Beautiful, large, spacious. The view out the back was actually incredible, but the land was barren. Don't know what I expected, but probably it was, I didn't know what to expect, to be honest with you, um, but it was a wonderful place. Now, as I said, the next day was for rest. However, I did climb up. A small mountain, wasn't that far, for the view. view was breathtaking, so obviously I took a lot of photographs and some videos. I took my GoPro camera with me. Basically, that's mainly what I use for scuba diving, but it films in cinematic mode in 4K resolution, so wonderful. The morning of day two, I was picked up for a drive to the area of Sossusvlei, which is an area surrounded by high sand dunes. Now, my task for the day, sounds really weird, my task for the day was to climb one of the world's highest sand dunes. It's named Big Daddy, or Dune 7. There's plenty of big sand dunes, actually, in Namibia. There's a scientific reason why these sand dunes 
happen like this. It's to do with the winds coming from the east and the west, etc. But I won't go into that. I'm talking about my little trip here. There are two routes to the top of Big Daddy. Short one and a long one. Now, Big Daddy, I would say, is about 1,300 feet high. There's a short route, which is steeper, and there's a long one, which is a little bit flatter, uh, a lesser gradient, I would say. Now, I chose a latter because of less steepness. However, it would take longer. Now, as I said, the dune is almost 1,300 feet high. However, imagine walking uphill on soft sand. It presents obvious challenges. Like you put one foot in front of the other by two feet and it sinks down to about six inches apart. So apart from falling down a couple of times, it took me about almost 90 minutes to make it uh, to the top. It was tiring. It was challenging to say the least. Now descending the wall on the dune involved stepping down sidewards. You can point yourself forward, but you may fall down, and if you fall down, it could be that you may end up rolling down the rest of the way, which is a long way, and you're going to get sort of mucky or dirty from the sand. So, my guide, whose name was Primus, I believe, told me the way to do this, sort of walk sideways and uh, don't stop too long on one foot. And that's exactly what I did. So, stepping down sideways, and I did stumble a couple of times, but I finally made it, and it was a bit nerve-wracking, but I survived that. What a beautiful thing, climbing the world's highest sand dune. It's hard to picture, isn't it? But such a things exist, and there's a number of high sand dunes in that area. At the bottom was an area called Deadvlay. Deadvlay. Its meaning is dead marsh. It is an area that is almost spooky. That's my description. The trees in that area are about 900 years old, but have never decomposed due to the very dry climate. So they just dried out. You know, you know, they didn't collapse. They just dried out. But because of no moisture, they couldn't decompose and just fade away. No, they're there. That's what I mean. It's spooky. Now, add in the white clay pan, which is a floor where the water wants, add in that white clay pan, the surrounding red dunes and the clear blue sky, it's a pretty unique area to walk around with a lot of great photo opportunities. So if you get a chance, Google Deadvlay, D-E-A-D-V-L-E-I. It was time for picnic lunch. So with our small tour group, uh, just off or outside of Deadvlay, uh, we parked the Jeep and we set up shop for a little picnic. Nothing substantial, but a snack. And we were joined by one of the friendly locals, which was a black back jackal. <laughs> I've never known such a thing existed. I've heard of a jackal before, but it actually, quite friendly it was. I don't know if they're normally friendly, but it looked like a fox or even a dog, but it had a black back to it interestingly enough. So we just uh, sat there hoping for a few scraps of food. Well, after lunch, we were off to Cesarium Canyon, an area shaped by the Shaosham River over millions of years. Now, at 100 feet deep, 
I thought, well, it's time to climb down. I walked to the edge, and there's a big drop. All right. Our tour guide did mention about that. You know, there's nothing to hold on to. Just look over the edge gradually. Now, it's time to climb down. There's a passage you can climb down into the canyon. Now, at the base of the canyon, there is, in fact, water. And because of the dry climate, the early settlers had to lower buckets into the canyon with handmade ropes in order to fetch their daily needs. There was no pathways during those early days. Uh, there was, for me, today. So over the years, they'd done some work to sort of knock out some rock to enable people to, to walk down there. Interestingly enough, great photo opportunity. Now in the region, there are several what we call weaver nests. These are abundant and they're visible on trees and telegraph poles. Now these nests are built by the sociable weaver bird. <laughs> what a name. And they're for sizable communities, which is rare in the bird world because a bird usually builds a nest for him or herself, right? But these are large structures which can house many, many birds. Now, they are made of plants, twigs, branches, whatever. These things are large. Now, apparently, if they get wet and fall, they're extremely heavy. They can weigh up to a ton, which is unbelievable. These things are very large. Now, when you look closely... I walked up to one of them. Um, you notice that there are many holes in this structure, which are entrances for the residents, the birds. Now, there are two birds per hole, I discovered. But one thing I didn't know is if the two birds were married or not. <laughs> Weird thing to think about, isn't it? But that, that's the type of thing that, quest that sort of enters my mind. I have these questions. No one knows. Now, other animals I saw during my venture into the desert were springbok, gazelle, a gemsbok, meerkat, desert fox, jackal, wild dog, baboon, vulture, hyena, ostrich, wildebeest, and wild goats. There's quite a few other animals, but that's the mainly the ones I saw. Now, one evening, back at the lodge now, the lodge manager drove me to close to the top of one of the nearby mountains at about 2,000 feet up. He left me there alone uh, for about an hour with a snack and a couple of windhook beers, which are very good, by the way, windhook beers. And while the sun went down, so extraordinary view, I had this feeling of isolation in a place that is miles from anywhere. It's a strange feeling, actually, but I knew he'd come back for me. If I had to walk down, I probably could have done it, but you wouldn't think about doing this at night time. Now, up until this moment in time, I had never been in a hot air balloon, so I was little apprehensive. I left the lodge at about 5 a.m. in the morning one day to reach the Namib Safari Balloon Station, where three balloons were being prepared to take off, with about 12 people in each. Right, There's four sections with three people in each section. Seemed like quite a lot to me. A lot of weight for the balloon to get lifted, but these are huge balloons. Now, the whole operation was managed by this guy, like a Steve Irwin character, you know, the crocodile hunter. <laughs> Him and his father run this operation. They were full of life and enthusiasm. Originally from Belgium, Steve, Steve Irwin type character. His name was Dennis, actually. They'd lived all of his life in Africa. 
There's a story behind it because they originally lived in the Congo, then a war broke out. They drove, moved out of the country and moved to Rwanda, then a war broke out. Eventually, they moved to a couple of other places and landed up in Namibia, which is uh, very safe, by the way. I never had any worry at all. So eventually, the balloons took off, three balloons taken off. There's a lot of people in the air. So we floated across the desert landscape at about 1,000 feet above the ground while the sun was rising in what was a magnificent display of Mother Nature's work. My GoPro camera videotaped the whole thing, so I've got precious memories. Unbelievable sights. Now, during my stay, I met fellow travellers from the United Kingdom, France, Brazil, Italy, Germany, and some with their children alongside, which is incredible, and all had this sort of adventurous spirit in them, like me. We were all the same, so we had plenty to talk about. We were all adventurous people. But the couple who brought their kids along, I thought that was wonderful. What a great thing to do uh, for your kids to see something like this. You know, kids have something to remember for the rest of their life. Well, so do the parents do. Now, whether it was Windhook or the people that worked in the lodges uh, or in the, even in the desert area, I found the Namibian people to be very friendly and welcoming with a fabulous sense of humor. For me, as well as being a unique experience, it was also very educational. I spent five days there. The food in the resort was mediocre, but, you know, um, we had a menu to pick from, but it was sort of the same stuff every night. That was the least of my worries. Remaining, though, time to check out was a five-hour drive back to Windhoek for the short flight back to Johannesburg. Now, on the long way, we took a different route, and we did stop in a small town. And it was, you know, the people lived there poorly, but they had housing. And you could see they were poor, but it didn't matter. They were crowded around the streets there. I'm sure uh, trucks came by with food uh, to help them out. So eventually my driver uh, got me back uh, to to Windhoek, and uh, it was time to leave town. I thought, my word, what an experience that was. I never thought I would have done that because it's not where many people, I, I don't know anyone who's been there, to be honest with you, but I did it. Now, my bucket list went down a notch. And saying that, I found the country of Namibia to be a very, very special place. Would I do it again? I could, but you know what? bit old now, I don't think I will, obviously, because I've got other stuff to do. And I said this before, the older I get, the longer my bucket list gets. I got to do something about that. But it's a wonderful place. So go onto YouTube, type in Namibian Desert or the Desert of Namib, and it will come up with various things to look at. I mentioned Sausage Flay. I mentioned Dead Flay. There's lots of other places to see there. But it's a wonderful site. Mother Nature at its best. Fabulous views. Well, folks, that was the end of my trip. Another adventure concluded, and on to the next one, I hope. I'm back in my office now, and uh, I'll be doing some more podcasts in the upcoming week or so. But thanks for listening today, folks, and I'll speak to you soon. Cheerio. Many thanks for joining me today. This is Malcolm Teasdale signing off. Before I do, 
please check out my website, MalcolmJTeasdale.com, for more information about my travels around the world. Okay, folks, talk to you later. Bye for now. Stay safe. 